0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit the slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
1: In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness.
0: I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega
1: Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim Versus The World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material?
0: Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough?
1: <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little foxes now voyager all about eve and whatever happened to baby jane
0: are you calling betty davis pig
1: only in personality and force (laughs) she is
0: a force to be reckoned with
1: we talked about the entire the godfather trilogy of course iconic page to screen even if it is just the one mario Puzo book wonder if coppola will ever make the sicilian
0: we also had some zhang yimu adaptations with judo and raise the red lantern absolutely gorgeous
1: movies And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material.
0: Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short
1: stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all
0: these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the
1: show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
0: Hey, welcome back. Here we are. We are officially no longer on vacation. No, and officially was, working like maniacs. It was delightful. How are you? I'm great. I as, am, uh, as we record this, you are, are have just been rescued from being stalled out in the desert. Would you like to share that story?
1: <laughs> I don't know how fun it is. Oh, I don't uh, think no, it's ever
0: really supposed to be fun.
1: Yeah, no, it's just production in the desert in the summer when it's 110 out. We've oh, just been filming a, for a TV episode, and the picture vehicle, of course, broke down the, the uh, camper van, and so yeah, I got to stay out there a few extra hours waiting for things to get sorted out, and they're still being sorted out. But you are you sneak you're, off to, you sneak up
0: to a podcast. <laughs>
1: That's great.
0: Oh. It's all about your uh, allegiances. work I am. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Shh, don't tell. Uh, I, I too, am back. I have not been stranded anywhere. All my flights were just about on time. It was really uh, quite good. But, of course, after being gone for so long, the emails and notifications are up to my eyeballs. Uh, So I'm just muddling through that. But I do want to talk about a couple of pre-show things. Man, Mm. did I read books. That's good. I read so many books, I want to talk about them. Not all of them in detail, (laughs) but I have to give you the update. Okay. Num- number one, I did it, Andy, I finished all of Ian Fleming's Bond books. And how many was that again? You would ask that. I think it's like fourteen. I think it's fourteen total. I, and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit kludgy because one of the Bond books was uh Octopussy and the Living Daylights, and it's actually a series of four four short books, uh or novellas, including Um, Octopussy and The Living Daylights and a couple of other ones that are all kind of tied into canon, and so that's not an official full-length, novel-length thing that Ian Fleming wrote, and so there are, I think, 13 of them that are part of the extended series, and then that short series of shorts, and they were all universally, in my opinion, uh, better than the movies by a wide margin, with the exception of the reboot of Casino Royale, which was really right on target, um, and the worst of the set, and I say that qualified, the worst of the set was, uh, uh, for, um, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, which was atrocious. It was terrible. It was seriously bad and offensive. And, you know, all of these things were, were reasonably racist, horribly sexist. Like you go into it knowing that, but, but the, the Spy Who Loved Me was, over the top and, and and just absolutely dated and offensive and it's not even really a bond book. Bond is a is a character that comes in in the last kind of quarter of the book and so it's it's not good. That's uh, the one written from from the perspective uh, the... of of a bond girl. Right. Yeah. So it it's it was a mistake. He uh, Fleming actually noted to his publisher that this was a mistake. I should not have written this, but you know, do what you want with it. Interesting. Uh, and it was terrible. So that was that. that's
1: actually and that's actually
0: one of Roger Moore's better movies. Yes, absolutely, and which which is interesting that they they borrowed from the book only the name. They everything else was written sort of whole cloth. Interesting. Uh, so I did that. Then I read um, uh, Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Now you know what this is. Nope. Die Hard. Ah, yes, that's right. Andy, man. I didn't even know it was based on a book, this Die Hard. But I'm telling you, this book is great. Roderick Thorpe, uh, Nothing Lasts Forever. It is a great, great book. And it's exactly what I wanted out of this book adaptation like I can I love both of these properties the book and the movie they both are fantastic standalone and and are are beautifully adapted uh, for one another the the only thing that is is substantively different than than the movie is the uh, they only change a couple of names but but the main character is actually the father of of the woman in the tower rather than the struggling, you know, was soon-to-be ex-husband, right? Mm. Uh, And so he was a World War II pilot. The book was written in the 70s. He was a World War II pilot. He is an older man. And uh, so to hear all of the great narrative of him running around barefoot, shoot the glass, I mean, the whole thing, um, all of that is played out with this kind of gray-haired older man, and it makes for a, a much different kind of more intense uh, story. Uh, the The book that was uh, adapted for Die Hard 2 is called 58 Minutes. It was by Walter Wenger, and I haven't read it yet, but it's it's on deck next. So that's that. The other thing—go
1: ahead. Is that, sorry, is that Walter—I uh, think it's Walter Wager— as opposed to Walter Wanger, who I thought you were talking about, because he was the guy who produced some uh, some films that we had talked about.
0: You're exactly right.
1: It is Walter Wager. Yeah.
0: Yes, I'm glad you said that because I, you know, I hear way, and it just ends <laughs> in jer. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I read, and this was because of Steve uh, Sarmento, once a future king. I I had started Ready Player One, Ernest Klein's book, uh, a long long time ago. And I didn't really connect with the first chapter, so I kind of put it down. But he told me, he said, do it, get it again, read the book. You're going to like it if you get all the way through it. And he was absolutely right. I really enjoyed it. And um, I was absolutely connected with all of the pop culture references from my youth. Uh, and that was a really fun read in preparation for Steven Spielberg's 2018 film of the same name. And, uh, and then I followed it up with his newest book, Armada, uh, which uh, just came out, uh, I think, I think last year, um, and it was not as good. But he sold the rights to Universal for a reported seven figures, so we should be seeing a film out of that too. Um, and so it was good. It was, it was pretty much, you know, any movie, any story where the main character is a kid who plays video games, and it turns out the video games were training for something else. Mm. That's pretty much what this book is. Spoiler: We spoil movies. <laughs> and then uh non book related Andy I just have to get this out there. I have now watched BVS Doge uh oh, yes. the ultimate edition. Oh you have. I have. I have. I've watched it twice and all the behind the scenes uh on the um that came with it. Wow. Andy <laughs> I know. I know we'll get letters. <laughs> I I really liked it. <laughs> I re- and I know I was already the one on the
1: show that 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 liked it more than all of you haters. I, hey, don't call us all haters just because we didn't like it as much as you. I liked it. I enjoyed the movie. I had some issues with it, but but I, <laughs> well, I didn't hate it. Well, you should see the ultimate edition because I'm telling you,
0: it it is a, ha, <laughs> I feel like I feel it's a little, a little trite for me to say this because of the Twitter sort of Sub meme that's
1: going on. I was gonna but say, were you the Twitter guy?
0: I was not the Twitter guy who who started this, but I I feel like uh, I, I trust Zack Snyder more. Let me say that it was a it was a dramatically uh, improved experience. Wow! Can you think of when was the last one that the last movie that you saw where the director's edition or the the extended edition dramatically changed the film from? you know,
1: bad to great or, you
0: know, good to great. Do you remember an experience like that?
1: God, I'd have to go through all the different director's cuts I've seen. I mean, recently, like I know Terminator. we just talked about Terminator 2 yeah. and, and that little bit. It was already great, but I think that the addition of uh, a bit with the, the chip in the head, it was greatier. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I've, I really, I mean, they filled so many, they made these characters, they made every one of these characters real characters, right? There, there wasn't anything that was just fluffed in there. And, and I think the, uh, um, they, they really built a a story of intrigue and suspense that, that didn't feel shoehorned in there at all. Um, And there, I still had two pretty significant problems that they didn't resolve, um, but they made them a little bit softer. Uh, as a result. So I, I really think it's worth seeing. And, uh, b- but I also, I wonder, like if we, we had a question, I think it was, uh, uh, Stephen Smart asked in our Slack group, he said, you know, I haven't seen the original. Was he the one or was this, uh, uh Mike? Anyway, someone in our Slack group said, I haven't seen the, the BBS Doge. Should I see, maybe I should just see the ultimate edition. And I don't know how to answer that because I feel like you should just see the good movie, but then what if you don't like it? Maybe you actually need, maybe you actually need to see the theatrical release in order to appreciate the ultimate edition. So there you go.
1: Yeah, but that but should you have to see that? See, that's the question. No, you Why? that's
0: what I don't know. I feel see, like I yeah. wouldn't. It was a fine movie. I really enjoyed it and particularly the back the behind the scenes stuff was really really good. I really enjoyed it and I'm very excited for Wonder Woman. Uh that is that is a property that has needed to be made for a long long time and I, I think it just the the additional stuff they put on this film to introduce the dc universe on film um really made me look forward to these characters i can't wait
1: interesting yeah it's really interesting
0: yes i'm in
1: very exciting
0: let the let the let my inner boy out of his closet <laughs> let him out
1: well, I definitely want to see that one. It's on my list of things to uh, to see at some point, at uh, some point soon, hopefully. So you have a shout out. I do. Yes, uh, I can't you know, believe this is so exciting. Oh, It was great. While I was on my vacation, I was in a, a store called uh, PJ's, kind of a grocery store, and uh, and uh, uh, the lady checking me out, Jamie, she was looking at my Next Real shirt, and we started talking about it. And she's like, "My husband listens to that show." <laughs> so small world. So yeah, shout out to Theo in Durango who tunes into the show. So uh, glad you enjoy it and uh yeah, keep checking in. So this was this was on your trip to um to Monument Valley. Yes. You want to talk yes. about while, that a little bit? While I was on vacation, I also uh we stopped in Monument Valley for a couple of days to uh enjoy the beauty there and of course also to <laughs> let's see, I shopped for pony prize uh prizes and including including a special pony for the <laughs> Pony Prize, which I'm very excited about. And, of course, you know, in in uh, the spirit of Forrest Gump that we uh, have talked about on the show, I, of course, uh, did my own little Instagram slash Facebook video that is posted for everybody to see <laughs> out there in the world uh, in tribute to Forrest Gump. And so, yes. It was the, so funny. <laughs> the, the famous road that uh, where he finishes his uh, his cross country run. That was pretty good. Good times, yes. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was quite fun.
0: Yeah, that was good. Forest Gump point turns out is a real. That's a
1: place a lot of people. And, and there's a sign there, and everything. It's is it like, really? Yeah, it says you know uh, this is where Forrest Gump ended his uh, cross country run in 1980. <laughs> they do it as if it's a real thing it's fantastic (laughs) that's so good it really is it is of course a beautiful spot i mean you're right there just north of Monument valley it's just an amazing road you can see why so many different filmmakers want to go shoot there yeah
0: well well done there and uh, let's see what we got some emails that clarified some things for us
1: yes this is this is of course what happens when we go on vacation (laughs) oh yeah we have this is more follow-up than we've ever had on the show (laughs)
0: Right. <laughs> uh, the first one. This comes from uh, from Mike Ashford, uh, who is a a very kind uh, friend of the show. He says, "Hi guys, a quick email to let you know how much I enjoyed the Great Escape episode, despite your pronunciation of Richard Attenborough no, intentionally incorrect. Attenborough's name it's pronounced Attenborough, not since Simon and Garfunkel's Scarlbur- Scarborough f- sc- see Scarborough Fair." Has the word "borough" been so mispronounced? Anyway, love the show and can't wait to hear the next episode. You guys are great. Mike Ashford, Shropshire, UK. Now, to which I had to respond, a resident of (laughs) Shropshire has written us, and we've had trouble with Shire, the word Shire before. It's not Shropshire, as it turns out. I responded with this question, hey, since you are a native, tell me how to pronounce Shire. And he uh, he he wrote uh, thanks, uh, and he says having spent the best part of a year living in Vallejo, California, the Vallejo in the Bay Area, I'm convinced, as the saying goes, that we are two nations divided by a common language. <laughs> the word shire in the U.S. tends to get a bit Lord of the Rings in its pronunciation. Here we say Shropshire, Shropshire, as in Shropshire, as in shirt, without the T. I hope that helps as I can still hear the good people in a bar in Petaluma laughing uncontrollably at my attempts at Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for helping and correcting us, Mike. We sure appreciate you uh, writing
1: in. As do the hobbits from the Sure. <laughs> 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 Oh, yeah. There you go. Stupid Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I love it. And then, of course, Charlie Ullman also wrote in about the Dr. Love episode, saying, a Great episode. I'm a fairly recent subscriber to your podcast, and uh, he discovered it a few months ago while searching for some stuff on uh, Touch of Evil, and now he's been checking the show out. He says, I'm sure I'm not the first person to mention this to you, but on the off chance you mentioned that you couldn't think of a sexual connotation for the name Mandrake, there most definitely is one. There was some folklore that Mandrake used to grow underneath gallows where men had been hanged. Waiting for Godot, premiered 10, mere, ten years prior to Love, made specific reference to a a curious sexual twist on this, and uh, <laughs> uh should we read this do you want to, do you want to play one of the parts <laughs> which which part would you like me to like me to play As estragon or vladimir uh you' whichever I'll play estragon oh of course all right <laughs> good go ahead What about hanging yourselves hmm it'd give us an erection an erection
0: with all that follows. Where it falls, mandrakes grow. That's why they shriek when
1: you pull them up. Did you not know that? Let's hang ourselves immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there you go. Yeah. See, we bring real culture to this
0: We show. sure do.
1: Oh, <laughs> we knew and we We're going to have some ow. waiting for Godot on, uh, on this Andromeda Strain episode.
0: Uh, and then we had something uh, the good Ben Lott uh, has written in with, uh, with uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, is this
1: prehistory? it's a, it was a great find regardless of what yeah, it, is. it was but yeah he sent us a uh, you know in honor of us starting to talk about first shot last shot of all these different movies he found a link on one perfect shot where it's a an article about the you know, basically somebody had created this vimeo link uh, where he compiled a whole bunch of different films like 5 plus minutes worth of films first shots and last shots and put them side by side so that you could look at them and really kind of see what the director was saying with that it was jacob t swinney who put that together uh, a year ago over on vimeo very interesting to look at and see and i'm glad that we're talking about that now
0: let's tell the people where we're from where are we from is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our 2016 series on disease films, with a sweet little ditty from 1971, Robert Wise's The Andromeda Strain... Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel, and if you've ever found yourself stuck on a flashing red light limbo, then you're just the sort of egghead who is ready for the nextreel's Instagram hashtag #ponyprize Movie challenge.
1: And with that, let's take a trip through the Xenon Lamp Scrub to burn off the outer epithelial layers of our skin, then make our way down to Level 4, where Games Master Stephen Smart is waiting to tell us who this week's winner is. Hey guys, and welcome back. While you were away, we had four films and three winners. First of all, congrats to At Cotton Signs, who got Slapshot from 1977. And then congrats on a double win goes to brendo 61 who guessed... The Carpetbaggers
0: from 1964 and Foreign Correspondent from 1940.
1: And then to finish off, congrats to AtFegfey, who got the brilliant Out of the Past from 1947. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later.
0: At long last, we return with The Blot Spot. Uh, a friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in
1: with his uh, feedback on a couple of films that we've missed. Yeah, first up, uh, it's both of our uh, vacation challenges. Dr. Strangelove, he says, Dr. Strangelove is a brilliant film that made me laugh a lot, and yet it had something to say as well. The cast is spectacular, and I love how they play it mostly serious, allowing the script to provide the humor. It was actually my first time watching it, so I'm glad you picked it, Andy, to get it off my list of shame. I can't say it's my favorite movie after the first watch, but it certainly impressed me a lot. Your rank four, my rank 14. That's fantastic. that is fantastic. I'm, I'm... I can't wait till he watches it again.
0: That's I'll right. bet it climbs. <laughs> uh, before that, he had uh, he'd given us a, a blot spot on Paranorman. This was my vacation challenge. He says, While I greatly respect the skill and dedication it takes to do stop motion animation. I don't usually like the look of it. Add in the fact that Paranorman is horror themed, and I probably should have hated this movie." but the story was so strong I actually really enjoyed it. I was stunned when they turned the tables, and with only a few frames of the film, I went from looking at the zombies as bad guys to feeling sorry for them. I was also impressed with the message of embracing forgiveness and compassion instead of prejudice and hate, something we really need nowadays. Your rank 18, my rank 39. Not a bad showing for a horror stop-motion film.
1: Yeah, and I think all in all, I'd say that this vacation challenge has certainly proved a little stronger in Ben's minds than any of our guilty pleasure challenges. I think so. Well, frankly, and in our minds, too. I don't uh, want yes, to speak indeed. for you, but... <laughs> I think that's fair to say.
0: And finally, we've got one more. Uh, this catches us up. I think this catches us up with everything from that we missed over vacation, including this one, our poorly calculated show on the Omega Man. <laughs> for many reasons. For so many
1: reasons, because <laughs> we can't do math. Oh, well, Ben said, wow. Omega Man was bad. Poorly acted, directed, scored, written, etc. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the biggest plot hole in the whole thing. Light sensitive creatures who decide to destroy things by burning them? Does fire not create light in this stupid movie? Man, Omega Man was painfully dumb. It's not the worst movie we've covered because it has that quirky, so bad it's good feel to it occasionally. But I'm never going to watch it again. You're ranked two forty-four. <laughs> my rank two thirty-four.
0: I love that Ben thinks there's a biggest plot hole in this whole thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, okay, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I feel like you've, this
1: has been one that's been banking up for you. <laughs> it has been. It has been. Yes, I'll go first. Uh, I'm excited to talk about my trailer. It is the third. I don't know if it's the final, but it's the third of uh, the, uh, what are we calling these? The uh, Dan Brown series trilogy? Yeah, it's, the, the, well, it's no. I'm Robert sure Langdon. he has something. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure he's got some other fancy name. But yes, it's, it's all these stories about uh, Langdon as he kind of pursues... Uh, you know, a a crime or a criminal in uh, using a bunch of ancient histories to do so, and this is of course Inferno. Tom Hanks's uh, next big thing, if you're not counting Sully, also his next big thing. Uh, but the, but this is the 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 Ron Howard next big thing. Um, it is uh, it, and it looks pretty interesting. I actually am one of the people who kind of enjoyed Da Vinci Code. I never read any of the books, but I did enjoy the movie. Um, I didn't care so much for angels and demons, um, but this one, it looks really fun. And it's awfully fitting for a disease series that we're talking about right now because it's essentially this this Inferno plague that somebody has created, this virus, that they are going to unleash on humanity and destroy a huge chunk of the population, which I think is uh, really funny considering what we're talking about. So um it's got all the same all, all the same stuff going on in this th- as in the other ones you know I've got to get to to Florence you know and just like <laughs> <laughs> the things that it just you, you never hear you know a, a James Bond type actually saying but I, I think that's ca- what I kind of like about these Langdon stories is that uh you know he's he's solving these crimes through uh through these ancient uh, texts and ancient paintings and and it's this weird level of puzzle play that uh, that all these people seem to be doing, which seems kind of absurd, but at the same time, I really do enjoy it, so... Um and of course Tom Hanks is in it and uh yeah I think and David Kapp is the screenwriter on it so I mean it's got a lot of stuff going for it I'm looking forward to it I'm definitely going to check this one out and uh have some fun with it what do you think Oh I uh, I was thrilled uh of course and I actually liked
0: all of the the Robert Langdon stuff I liked all the books I liked all the I just like it all I I don't care who he's talking about I it's I I'm in um, I was very excited to see Felicity Jones in this. I just love what she, uh, what she does. I like Ben Foster so much. And Irfan Khan, who, uh, I, uh, you know, I feel like I, man, he's, he's been around for a long, long time, this Irfan Khan, but, Khan, but he was, um, most recently for me, he was in, uh, Jurassic World, the, the industrialist owner of the park. And, uh, I, he, he flies a mean helicopter.
1: <laughs> yes, and of course, Life of Pi. I mean, I loved him. Right in right, right, in Life of Pi too. I mean, he's just one of those guys yeah, who slumdog pops up in, and yeah, yes, I mean, so many things. Yeah, so many
0: things. But I just really like that guy, and I I'm excited to see him in this one as well. It's a, a wonderfully international cast, uh, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be great. What I can I hope say? So. Yes,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I, and and Omar Sy is in it. He was uh, uh, I think just recently in. Uh, Intouchables, the, uh, that French film that got so much praise.
0: That's right. But, and uh, ironically, he was also in Jurassic World. He was one of the co-trainers of the velociraptors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes. No, it, it's great. And and so I, I think it's going to be a lot of
1: fun, a great uh, popcorn movie. When does it hit? This one's coming out in October. It's going to be a, a big kind of explosion um, in October that's going to kind of hit everywhere starting at the end, October 28th. Actually, no, it starts mid-October in in uh, Belgium, Argentina, Australia, and then it just kind of goes through the whole month. Uh, actually, oddly enough, U.S. is the uh, kind of one of the last stopping points. <laughs> uh, Canada, Japan, U.S. on the 28th, and then France the n- November 9th, and that's kind of the end of uh, it. But yeah, it starts uh, big over everywhere else in the world. Well, I can't wait.
0: Uh, my trailer actually comes out first. I'm talking about Edge of Winter, uh, director Rob Connolly. Co written by Connolly and Kyle Mann, the story of two brothers stranded by a brutal storm with an unpredictable father they barely know. The boys begin to suspect their su- supposed protector may be their biggest threat. The film stars Tom Holland, Joel Kinneman, Rachel Lefebvre, Shiloh Fernandez, Rossif Sutherland, uh, Patrick Garrow uh well, lots of lots of people, but the thing i the the one I was most interested in well the two I should say joel kinneman and um and tom holland um uh, i'm I'm pretty excited about this film. It looks gritty it looks any anytime you put two kids with an unsuspecting sort of murderer father character i I'm fascinated. What was the one that we that hit that we liked so much uh probably two years ago? We didn't talk about it on the show, but I know we picked it as a trailer. It was the kids and they found the guy living in the woods, mud mud. Oh,
1: with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah,
0: with Matthew McConaughey. It kind of has that sort of vibe to it, this trailer. I mean, except for it's in winter. And um, uh, it just looks really, really gritty. Uh, Rob Connolly was first and foremost a cinematographer, uh, has far more camera uh, credits to his name than he does um, uh, films. But this still looks like his first big feature. Uh, And he hasn't even helmed the camera for any big features. Uh, And he nor has he directed any large feature. Kyle Mann uh, has worked as a producer and um, uh, this is his first penned film, but he's been a producer on a number of uh, films that we would know Capote and Push and Devil's Rejects. And uh, so he's been around working on things for a while. Did it appeal to you from this group of uh, feature firsts?
1: It did. I mean, it looks it looks like one of these these creepy stories, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It, I do get troubled with kids who kind of feel like obligated to go do something with an adult who tells them so just because the adult's an authority figure like a parent or something and you just know it's going to end badly yeah <laughs> it's like oh, I, don't, I don't know if i want to watch this one it looks like it could be pretty rough um but it does look pretty interesting it definitely looks thrilling there are elements to it that i think um uh you know stand as strong and creepy elements and i i'm curious i'm really curious about this one to kind of get a sense of the direction that it really ends up going is this is this dad somebody who can be counted on or does he end up being unreliable and these kids have to fend for themselves so i'm very curious about it and i look forward to seeing it
0: august 12th 2016 and that is the only release date that we've got so it looks like it's going to be a, a either a small or at least currently unannounced weirdly unannounced uh, list of cities This close to its release. Uh, But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it mostly because of uh, that Tom Holland. You know, he's going to be
1: Spider-Man and uh,
0: that's, uh, you know, that's worth noting.
1: Excellent. I'm looking forward to seeing him in something other than Spider-Man to really get a sense. Because I don't think I saw him in anything before uh, Captain America. He was in uh, Locke. He was in Heart of the Sea. Well, he was in Locke, but he was a voice on the phone, right? Yep. Yeah. so I, I i heard him i guess you heard him, yeah. <laughs> didn't impress didn't like wow i he's great yeah <laughs> and what else did you say
0: uh in the heart of the sea didn't see that that well, was that, the, uh, that the would whale explain
1: movie. it that was the whale yeah i need to watch right. that
0: otherwise andy establishment gonna fall down go boom now don't be scared i'm a doctor Where am I? a special laboratory in nevada we brought you here you're sick In a true biological crisis, which our exploration of space could bring about, the present lunar receiving laboratory might prove inadequate. I therefore urge the establishment of a facility to deal specifically with an
1: extraterrestrial form of life. Seems to me, General, Dr. Stone put one over on you. In fact, he made us all think his wildfire lab could handle any contamination from outer space. Isolate and identify.
0: Good God. It's no accident. I suspect they were looking for the ultimate biological weapon. You could change everything. This is, of course, Sandy, the Andromeda Strain. I didn't know mm. right? The Andromeda Strain, I didn't know based on the book by the late Michael Crichton. Uh, this was directed by Robert Wise. Screenplay by Nelson Gidding. And stars Arthur Hill, David Wayne, James Olson, Kate Reed, Paula Kelly, George Mitchell, Raymond Bieri. Kermit Murdoch, you go Kermit, Richard O'Brien, Peter Hobbs, Eric Christmas, and a few others. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a story of a, uh, a rock from space that happens to have a little green silicon alien on it, and it kills a town, and that's why we're talking about it. Mm. How'd it hit you, Andy.
1: I saw this uh, for the first time sometime in the last 10 years or so. I I rented it because it was one that uh, I don't know if it's in a Crichton kick. I can't remember exactly what it was that I was doing, Um, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I I do enjoy the story. I think it's really interesting. Um, It's not the most uh, gripping film. I I definitely feel that Robert Wise um, would go through these uh, periods (laughs) where he really focused on on uh, the process of things. And I definitely appreciated that in this film, yet it didn't um, make it a film that I ended up loving. I found it interesting. I enjoyed it. I think it works. Um, But yeah, it never fully got me captivated.
0: I think that's the problem of it, because it sets up a really strong premise. I love the discovery of the town. I think that's a really kind of intense sequence and the buzzards and it all just that all really works for me. It's it's once they get into the lab, the interminable processing of of body and cleaning and all the levels, it was it it it, it should have been great, but I was so bored. Through much of that. And, and that is, uh, I think, a sign of a poor adaptation because this is Michael Crichton's stock and trade. I mean, this is what he does is write these sort of procedurals and he does it really, really well. And I think uh, that, uh, I, you know, hell, I even liked Sphere. You know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of where we are. I think that this is this is his uh, his domain, and and I think the adaptation just did not do justice to the source material, uh, which I think as a novel really holds up even to this day. And and so that was a that, that was a challenge I had, particularly because I liked so much about the end. I think the end, the intensity, the end, which really allows us to capture the, um, the kind of I, I think the heart of. Of the material, which is, you know, that technology has run amok, we fear strangers, and um, that we have to um, uh, somehow uh, overcome our own sort of man-made devices and and stop the bomb from going off. The ticking clock element here I think is really intense, and I, I like that element a lot, um, and, and I, I wish there had been more of that in the, you know, hour and 40 minutes in between the beginning and that point at the end.
1: Well, it's funny. Um, so you've read the book. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. So I've never read. It's been a long I, time. I should say I haven't read a single Crichton book. I've never read anything of his. Oh, um, yeah. Somehow, <laughs> I've managed to skip them all. I don't know exactly how I did that, but yeah, I never got on any of the uh, any of the bandwagons when they kept coming. Every time a new movie would come out, you know, he talked about the way that he wrote this book as if this whole thing was real. He wrote it as if it was almost kind of a, a science textbook sort of thing, where it was just kind of explaining a situation. He wrote it very um, kind of withdrawn from the characters, just very, um, very focused on facts. And uh, like he even went so far as to create a completely fictional bibliography at the, in the back of his book. He put um, imagery in there and and kind of computer printouts in there to make it feel like this was just a real thing. And he was basically just an author documenting exactly what it was that had happened, Um, which I thought was really interesting. And I actually, you know, without having read the book, I actually felt like the film and the script uh, basically did exactly what Crichton was doing with the book when he wrote it. This is um, some filmmakers um, who took the work and said, okay, okay, this is how he wrote it. Now, we are going to write it as if it's a documentary, and we're going to basically kind of document this process of what happened over these four days and everything that these uh, these people had to go through in order to basically save humanity. And I thought that it was a very interesting process and a very interesting way that they went about it in doing so. Still, I don't think it completely worked. Um, but I, I from from the perspective of not having read Crichton, I certainly can appreciate that uh, Robert Wise and Nelson Gidding chose that direction to adapt this book.
0: Yeah, I do too. I, you know, for me, it, it, I don't know. It's, I can see why they, they chose to adapt it. I just feel like they didn't capture what the, the source material really wanted to tell us. And, and, and this is the connection to Westworld. You know, he wrote and directed Westworld in 1973 and that film, reads very much to me like an apology to this. That, that is, this is, that's the, the message, the underlying message uh, around technology and fear is all about Westworld. And it, it is everything in Westworld that comes from that does not, is, is what is missing in the Andromeda strain in terms of just the heart and soul of, of the film.
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I mean, I have plenty of problems with Westworld and I'm really glad yes. that they're readapting it because the movie is um full of issues. I have problems galore with it as fun as it is. Um I I'm really excited to see what this uh recent remake is going to be like for TV. But um but yeah, I I mean, I think you're right. And going back to Robert Wise again and I mean just when I watched this again this time I'm like this is exactly what he did in Star Trek the Motion Picture. He yep. spends so much time focusing on all these details and elements and things that make up the process of of people doing these things that it just makes it interminable. And you're right. I mean, the whole middle where you're watching them go through the process, you know, they say it's going to be, I can't remember, six hours that they have to go through these processes uh, in order just to get down from one level to the next level.
0: But God, and why did they show us all six I, hours? I
1: <laughs> exactly. That's what it feels like. Oh, it's just uh, yeah. I mean, there could have been another way. There is another way that it could have been done, and yeah. he just chose to do it this way because he, you know, seems obsessed with it.
0: Well, and you know, obsessed with it. Yeah. Also, they they put an awful lot of work into that set and and into the and and it felt really like a a kill your darlings moment. Like they just fell in such love with so many elements of the production that they forgot to cut for sake of story. That's what it it really reads to me. Like they just wanted to. Show Show us every button, every button push, every click, every one of those fantastic computer, um, you know, early computer animations that they were building. Um, you, you know, they needed to show us all the stuff they built, and and that was that ended up really doing
1: a disservice to the final film for me. I think a certain element of it. Nelson Gidding was talking about um, how when he wrote the script, he wrote it as a cine script by Nelson Gidding, not just script or screenplay by nelson Gidding, and looking at pages of his script it actually has some of the details from i don't know if it's just from the book um or from the book as well as the film but certainly elements that were that you see in the film like when the computer does the 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 printout scan of of one of the doctor's uh, feet as it kind of examines it for germs and stuff and you see the little foot image come up on the screen made out of text uh, different letters yeah like thing. zeros ones twos right yeah. exactly um that is a page in his cine script so it's it's interesting it's like they they took to all of that detail so much so that they actually wrote it into the script so that they could write it into the film and yes it just it bogs things down quite a bit
0: so they they made it, uh, a few changes uh, in in terms of just the structure of the the uh, book to movie and doing the adaptation. Um, one of them of course was changing a central character from a uh, man to a woman.
1: Yes, they did. Yeah, they uh I guess they decided I uh, yeah, I think uh Nelson getting I I hate to say he was ahead of his time. But yeah, he he rightfully decided he <laughs> decided that uh Dr. Peter Levitt from the book um you know that we had all these male doctors why not uh, make somebody a female and so he rightly switched uh Peter Levitt to uh Ruth Levitt and uh and convinced I think a little uh, I don't I don't want to say begrudgingly but I think it took a little convincing to uh for uh, Robert Wise to uh, make that switch and it's funny cuz reading the stories about that. It actually sounded like Robert was really unsure of this decision when uh, they went into it, and actually had to consult some scientists to see if it was okay <laughs> to have a woman scientist come in and do this. And they're like, "Oh yeah, of course, we've got all sorts of women scientists," but just right. I think it's those conversations. Wait, do, okay,
0: seriously, girls do science. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that brings us all the way back to uh, what was it? Thor with science, right? The little science. science video. So there you go. Uh, oh, so there man. were there
0: were a couple of other uh, little changes, and and but overall, I think what is mostly missing, as we've already talked about, is the heart. Uh, I do want to bring up the the opening. Um, well, there was the oh, there are two things going on in the very open. Uh, there there's the the opening title card, right?
1: Right. The, before the opening titles. It's it's like, uh, I think that they added it there to further enhance this documentary style, making it feel very much like this is a story that is being put forth as if they are just kind of pre- presenting some uh, actual documented information for us.
0: We want to do a found footage film, but we don't know what that is yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust hasn't that's played right. it hasn't played for me yet. I have no inspiration. Uh after the opening title card that's uh, it it talks about how, you know, it, it talks about how this thing happened and that it was Yeah, I think it says something about how the the uh the papers are going no, nothing in here should um uh should violate national security. Uh, There's something about National School. Then he goes into the opening titles. Lola Landikich is over at uh, Art of the Title, uh, and has done some fantastic write-ups over there. And and she says, along with the uh, sonic language of devices, an onslaught of information is presented, superimposed and mutated. The hums and beeps, syncopated and layered, abstract themselves into an ominous mechanical thrum, a soundtrack for graphic annihilation as the truth dangles just beyond our reach which is a really beautiful way to describe something that I hated so much. <laughs> uh, Attila Delando's titles f- were uh, exactly that. It's like if you take that beautiful language from Lola and you, and you say it with a really mean voice, that's how I felt. It was an onslaught, and it was mutated, and it hurt my face and my head. Wow. Wow. I think it's mostly the sound the 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 uh the I, I would say not music, but the sound, and we'll uh we can talk a little bit about that uh, about Gil melay uh, who who did the uh, i'll graciously call it a score. uh we'll talk about that in a little bit. i I had a really hard time with it, and I think it starts out right at the beginning, hurting my head. there you go. <laughs> that's so that's how I started the film, feeling bad.
1: That is funny, I don't know if it's funny. I liked it. I thought all oh, that was great i, like, could have I predicted it, it, that i I thought it's it uh set me up uh very well for a film that uh I was expecting more from
0: you know I think it's one of those things you know how like some people can't taste certain things you know like yeah. for for some people they 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 eat popcorn and only taste copper. That's right. Yeah, well, I, I may be making that up, so don't agree too quickly. But it's similar to that. I just, the sound was so grating to me that I, I felt like I had to squint
1: through it. I did it for you. You need one of those, uh, you're one of those people who watches those videos just to hear the sounds of people like running their fingers through somebody's hair or things like that. I (laughs) think you've just described something I don't do ever. (laughs) What are you talking about? those videos where it's just like a weird sound and people like listen to it for hours.
0: Yeah, no, I know. Those are, I don't associate with those videos or people who listen to them.
1: (laughs) Well, all I'm saying is that for some people, this uh, Gil, Gil Millet open is exactly what they want to be listening to. That is fair. I'll give you that. There are those people. <laughs> uh, the the film plays with time. A little bit, yeah. I thought it was interesting chronologically uh, that, I mean, essentially the story is taking place in February '71. Um, yet, uh, and that's kind of the four days. We have these four key days of this story, as they as these four scientists try to uh, stop the Andromeda strain from um, growing and and basically destroying humanity. Um, but then we also do get some jumps forward to April seventy one, where we kind of see some uh, Senate hearings uh, after the fact, and then we jump backwards to March sixty nine as um, I think one of our key scientists kind of starts setting up his group and kind of creating some of the rules. I thought that was an interesting little way to do that. I just wish that it did it a little more. Um, It really only happens. um, I mean, we do get some of the jumps to the Senate hearing midway through and then at the end, but that's pretty much it. And then I think just the once to the uh, the beginning. And it, I, I don't know, I really liked that element. I felt it was something they could have done a little more with.
0: In how they teased through it by only doing just a little bit of it, it, it made it a little bit hard to follow. What are we talking about now? You know, I mean, I just, I, oh, right. We're in the Senate hearing room now. I get it.
1: No, and that's absolutely true. I actually had to rewind it to look at the at the date stamps yeah. and go, oh, okay, this is after the fact. Oh, this is before. Like I actually did have to
0: Well, and let's let's go back to my hate of the opening titles. I think the opening titles set us up to disregard the date stamps because there's so much text in the opening titles that we Try to read, but don't. And it comes by so fast that we're left to, I think, as a viewer, we're left to say, you know, it's communicating, hey, there's a lot of data that we're talking about. This is a sciencey thing. There's going to be science happening in front of your face. You don't necessarily need to pay attention to all of this. And because of that conditioning, those date stamps go by a little too quickly.
1: That's very fair. And I think it's a logical thing to say. All right. First shot, last shot, then. Show off. Yeah, the first shot was... um I think what it's doing is really just setting up a a, a kind of mystery and an air of suspense. We don't know what's going on. It's so stinking dark, really hard to tell what's going on. But we do see the back of somebody's head. In the far, far distance, we see uh, a town, and we can't tell if if this person's a sniper or who they are. We don't really have a clear sense as to what this person is doing here. Um, so it's really just kind of setting up a, a sense of mystery. And we have already had kind of the opening text, so to a certain extent, you'd kind of understand the, the nature of this type of story. But still, it's an interesting way to set it up. I was I, I was actually interested to see what you would consider as the first shot. Yeah, it's hard to say because of all the credits, but I figured as soon as the credits ended for me... Yeah. Because everything else was coming during the credits, I figured that it all kind of built into just the title sequence and that this was really the first shot.
0: Okay. And that pairs with uh, the, the final shot, which I guess we have two choices here, too. Uh, we have the, the final shot of the—they're back in the Senate room. I think that's the final human shot. And we hear this—the uh, the last line is, you know, exactly, Senator, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, if this were to happen again. And then it clo- goes to the cl- to the close-up of the crystalline structure, uh, the, the sort of silicate that we were introduced to earlier in the film, mutating and growing. And on screen, we see, you know, 310,000 times magnification, then 998,000 times magnification, magnification, then 601 appears on screen. 601 represents when the computer has hit an overload because it's getting too much data from what it is measuring. And finally, end of program disengage uh,
1: demonstrating again that overrun the computer has failed and the movie is over which to me kind of had a little hint of uh, you know this is this is the sort of thing that maybe we need to be a little more prepared for we're not uh, you know our our systems that we currently have aren't expansive enough to really handle it Um, and uh, you know we need to be uh, watchful Uh, that was kind of the sense I had
0: yeah, you know, for for me and and I don't think this doesn't seem like a pairing that um you know, wise probably thought too much about, right, first shot last shot. And when we when we look at some of those fantastic uh first shot last shots in the video that um you know that uh Ben S- shared Swinner with us, yeah. Swinder stuff. Um you know, you can see there's some real intention around it. I don't see a whole lot of intention. What I find interesting about it is the first shot opens on what we eventually learn is a military uh attempt at at you know, containing whatever is going on, evaluating the situation, and that is a, very much a human construct. And then the end is the, the computer that can't handle what is going on, right? So nothing that we have created, no system that we have created, no human solution, no technical solution is able to handle what is to come. Um, and so it, it, is, it is the Kobayashi Maru. you know, it's the no-win scenario, and that's, that's for me, very much what, uh, what this
1: film is about. That makes sense. Let's talk about the cast a little bit. Yeah, it was interesting. Robert Wise, in order to really stick with that um, documentary feel, he he opted to kind of cast um, unknowns or at least people who weren't big stars like Gregory Peck, things like that. He opted to really kind of go for faces of people from theater or who had been bit players, things like that. And I thought it was an interesting choice, and I think it works, because it does It does kind of keep you a little separated from the actors, because you don't know who they are. You're really just trying to kind of absorb them um, from afar without having any experience with them beforehand.
0: Yeah. Uh, so who sticks out at uh, at you, for you? Uh, we start
1: with Arthur Hill. Arthur Hill? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think if anyone sticks out to me, really, it's Kate Reid. But, I mean, I did enjoy Arthur Hill. I mean, he seemed kind of like the uh, the leader of the group. He had a, a sense of things. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess talking about the heart that, you know, the story was missing, um, again, I, I really felt like I could have used a little bit more to help me connect to all of these characters. I just never really kind of got into any of them exactly. Um, but, I mean, I did enjoy him. And, you know, he had been in... A number of things, um, but yeah, this definitely, in, including actually Michael Crichton's Future World in 76. Right, right. Um, And he was actually the narrator of uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I didn't realize. Which was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I don't know. I say that... Um, but then I think about it, and I'm like, "Well, I, it was fantastic when I was a,
0: exactly." I was just, just gonna say that I may <laughs> be speaking way out of turn. I haven't seen it since I was dead, so whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was in the uh, adaptation of Rabbit Run. Um, he's uh, which was, which was great, um, and. Uh, you know there are some he's he's one of those characters that i feel like he, he sticks out to me as kind of the he's the doctor the agent the officer like the kind of weird mysterious uh, uh, man in power or control uh, kind of character and and in this case he is too he's also extremely sterile in this in this film i mean his portrayal of, of dr stone uh you know he very much abides by the process and the rules and his ultimate faith his ultimate allegiance is in the thing that he has created to protect the planet, even when everyone
1: else thinks it's ridiculous yeah um, he's the one that we flash back to into sixty yeah. nine and see him kind of setting a lot of this stuff up
0: right and so so he's ultimately the one who loses the most when the technology fails and the thing tries to blow them up and in spite of what they they now know to be uh, the wrong choice. Um, so I, I think he's an interesting character. I think it was an interesting portrayal as kind of the leader of the pack, the guy who who brought everyone together. And this is also a, a familiar trope in Crichton's work, right, is that there's the guy who wrote the report who then uh, gathers all of the experts from crazy different fields, right? The exact same playbook he used multiple times. I'm thinking specifically of Sphere in this case, where he wrote the playbook for what happens if an alien spaceship comes around, and all of these people didn't even know that they were in the list until an alien thing came around, and they were all called into duty to do something that they didn't even know they had to do. Um, and so it, it was interesting. This really felt like a, a throwback to something that uh, that Crichton has done before, and and Jeremy Stone's play, plays the guy who calls the team together. So,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Charles Dutton is played by David Wayne. What do we know of David Wayne? Do you like David uh, Wayne?
1: I like him quite a bit. I mean, his uh, I, I I don't know. I think that his face is a face that you just find comforting. Um, he seems like one of those guys that uh, you'd want to be your doctor because you'd feel you'd feel safe with him. I think mm-hmm. um, you know I, I enjoy his bit. Um, the woman who plays his wife is actually um, uh, was the wife in seconds before before he goes and has his big surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting, an interesting note in his career is that he actually played the Peter Laurie role in the remake of M in nineteen fifty one, where it was all set in uh, in L A. Oh, fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of an interesting little tidbit in his career. But I mean, I, I I like him. I mean, he's not uh I don't know, again, not one of my favorite characters in the film, but I do enjoy him. I think that he's interesting enough. Um he's he had been in some interesting films like Adam's Rib and Stella and uh and uh, I I don't know the Front Page. I mean, he, you know, his his career's kind of up up and down. It's definitely a lot of uh bit parts through his career, but yeah. um he's Somebody that I do enjoy seeing on the screen. Had a long career, uh forties to late
0: eighties. Yeah. Uh before he passed away in ninety-five. Uh James Olson plays Mark Hall. Little Jimmy Olson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I guess they called him that. <laughs> He's one of those guys who you know, looking through his credits, like, well, I guess I saw him I think I, Amityville two is probably where I saw him before, but I think that's it. I mean, I think his part was uh, was uh, was an interesting one because he ends up being the one who is kind of the forced savior because without you know knowing it, he's the one who uh, they kind of are relying on. He's the uh, I can't remember what they called him, but like he's the, the odd man, man out. He's man the odd out. man out, right? Yeah. Because. He's not married to anybody. He doesn't have any, any attachments. So he's the one that they can bequeath this key to uh, to shut off the uh, nuclear device because he's the only one who's not attached. Don't you have to die to be bequeathed? I, I don't know. Do you? Then I guess you bequeath. Bequeathed. Yeah, I think bequeath
0: is kind of dark. <laughs>
1: he's he's given, but yes, you're, you're right. <laughs> Here's a funny thing. You want to hear no, a funny says, thing? Bequeath, pass something on or leave something to someone else. Oh, so technically. Well,
0: there's subtext. There's yes, no okay. subtext in a dictionary. <laughs> Andy. Right, fine. I actually really like James Olson. He was the he was the medical doctor, and I think if anything is if if there is heart to be found in the uh the sterility of the rest of the lab, it's going to be in the office, in or in the um, in the doctor's uh theater, right? Yep. This is where we have our uh, our nurse Paula Kelly and uh, James Olson working together to figure out how what is in common with an old man who drinks sterno and a little baby uh, who is found crying the only survivors from this town where everybody else turned to dust
1: right no, and it is it's interesting
0: it is interesting, I think that is actually one of the one of the more interesting um you know story lines in the film and and I enjoyed following him and I enjoyed his the way he portrays the sort of passion of his work. you know, let me just get back into the lab, let me get back to these to my patients you know and uh, while well, everyone else was just focused on the rock,
1: but without knowing it, yeah. luckily he didn't because Uh, If he had been in there more often and taking care of the baby better, the baby would have stopped crying and would have died. That's right. Kate Reed, you want to talk about Kate Reed from the beginning. I I really enjoy her. I think that it was smart to switch a role to a female, and I think that she ended up being the one who's the most interesting. I think she's given a lot of fun lines, a lot of personality and zip, and just that, that sarcasm. Um, she comes across as somebody who, I don't know, I, I think she just works really well as this character in the film. Um, I mean, we talked about her in Atlantic City. She was in that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think that she's just one of those actresses that does kind of have a way of standing out. And I think there's something about her look here, the way they really dress her down, with her science outfit um, to just kind of make her be this, um, just this person who is just uh, there to get her work done and, uh, you know, complain about it as needed.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, she was grizzly. I think, you know, I, I, it's a little bit unfortunate because that middle sequence takes so long. I I feel like some of the, the complexity of her character is a little bit lost. I love that she is, um, she's epileptic. I, I I love that part of her character. I think that's really interesting, and and I think they you know they play it so soft, like her and her red light, like discovering the red light and and um, missing the red light on the, the red flashing signal on the computer screen. Um, it's uh, it, it, if you're not really paying attention, it could pass by, and you're not quite sure how they how they figure stuff out without that clue, without the clue to to uncovering that she's epileptic.
1: Yeah, that's a very critical part of the story and um, I, I think it's really interesting. And it is one of those ones where it's like they they, they could have spent a little more time focusing on that. I, I guess I didn't have that much problem with the focus on it. It just might have been um, one of those things, though, that could have um, just been built up a little bit. Because by the time um, Dr. Hall kind of figures out the thing, it, it doesn't... I don't know, the way that he... Figures it out and sorts out the plan. It 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 seems to kind of deflate some of the um the crisis caused by it. Yeah,
0: that's true. Uh, which which again, it sort of underplays her, you know, the complexity of her yeah. character. No, you're, right. you're I, right. I would say if you uh, have you seen uh, Death of a Salesman, the t- the uh, Dustin Hoffman TV movie of it with nope. uh, Malkovich, she plays Linda Loman, and it it is absolutely riveting. Portrayal of that character from uh, 1985. It's it's one uh, that we we look at in the class that I teach. That it's it's just great. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out.
1: Huh. I need to check that one out.
0: Uh, I already mentioned Paula Kelly uh, plays Karen Anson,
1: the nurse. Yep. She. I don't know. I guess it's just one of those roles where it's like she's she's a woman nurse and she's the one who uh, it seems to have the maternal instincts and care about the baby. Yeah. And it just felt a little um, kind of 60s, 70s male, you know, and it's like, of course, she's going to be the one who's got the maternal instincts and wants to save the baby and feed the baby and all that. Right. Uh, it, you know, it just, you know, she's not as cold and clinical because she has that maternal instinct and cares. And, you know, I don't know. I guess I enjoyed her enough in the film. It's just the part for me. Um, I don't know. It bothered me in that aspect.
0: You're a hard man, Andy Nelson. I am. Uh, she was, uh, she's was. she been in a bunch of stuff, but uh, she is, I think, more known for her role in Soylent Green, um, which, if you haven't heard, is People. Spoiler! Jeez. I'm not sure you've heard we, we spoil <laughs> movies around here. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought she was great, and I think I think her character actually serves more of a role than the the maternal in- instinct. She's the uh, she's sort of the interface to the lab, and I kind of like her introducing um, uh, James Olson to the lab that he's going to work in. You know, I like the little tour. I like the com- her the way she talks about the computer. I like the way she kind of welcomes us to to the laboratory. She's she's the thing that gives the production design a voice. Um, in, in many respects. And so I, I liked that part.
1: No. And and I agree with that. I, it, I definitely feel that I just, it was that other issue that, that bothered me, but you're right. She's fine.
0: I don't have to be right. I am in this case, but I don't have to be, you know, she was in uh, night court. Oh yeah. I mean, she was, was she, in night court? she was uh public defender, Liz Williams. She was a recurring character. Huh. Uh, how Anybody else on uh, on in cast that you particularly want to talk about, that you have something to say?
1: I don't think so. I, I think uh, the rest of the cast, uh, they did their part. But again, the whole idea of this film is to have this documentary. It's almost a very clinical, sterile documentary approach. So you don't get really attached to people. They're there fulfilling their roles. And so that's kind of, you know, that's where I stand with it. I, none of them really wowed me because of that. All of these characters. I mean, it's tough to find
0: one that has fewer than a hundred credits. Many of the credits after these after these films in the '70s were, um, you know, uh, TV. Um, with the exception of Kermit Murdoch, who ended up with just a few credits uh, until the late '70s when he passed away. Uh, so, you know, interesting. Uh, but I, you know, you'd see them through the '80s TV, through ER, through St. Elsewhere, through, um, you know, through the '80s and '90s TV. Uh, they're they're kind of staple faces that look familiar, but no breakout stars, right? I would yeah. say. All right.
1: Interesting how this and Omega Man both kind of uh, feel that way as far as the the actors that they had in them. Yeah,
0: this this was a film that stifled careers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the film rights of this thing, uh, this was, I guess, one of the early uh, big breaks for Crichton as a screenwriter. He he they he sold the rights for two hundred fifty grand. In well, and this the 1970s. was
1: seventies, and this was early in his career. I mean, this was was the first book that he wrote under his own name. Everything else, because he was in med school, yeah, and he didn't want all the people to know that he was an author because they would think less of him. Uh, so he just you know, I, I which I think is really funny. Um, but uh everything else that he'd written prior had all been under pseudonyms. And this was the first time that he actually wrote something under his own own name. And uh yeah, I think it just it was it, it caught on and people were interested by it. And I mean yeah, I, I think it's uh great that he was able to kind of get a nice little chunk like that for uh for selling his novel for an adaptation.
0: And a fun, it was a fun book. It was a, a much more fun book than the film ended up being. Um, cinematography, uh, man, this was this was like a demo reel for the split diopter. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> right? yes, it was. There was a lot of it in there, and that was. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was Richard Klein who was the DP, or if it was Robert Wise. I know Robert Wise had a lot of say in doing that because he really wanted to make everything kind of visible. Um, again, kind of that documentary approach. He didn't want it to necessarily feel like he was picking and choosing. Um, so yeah, you really have split dive or all over the place and split screen. I mean, it's, and it's interesting split screen too. It's not just straight up, you know, two halves of a screen. There would be like little floating boxes and other boxes that would kind of join them or float around them and everything. It's pretty interesting. It, I, I enjoyed seeing what he did with it.
0: I really did too. I think that the there's a really interesting segment uh, as the team is searching the town, uh, in which they use split screen to show what the team members are looking at as they're looking at it without taking the camera off the team member. So. You'll right. see a floating box of, a, of, of you know, a hazmat-suited team member peering through a window, and then what is in that window shows up in a separate box next to them, so you can see what they're looking at. And then it'll disappear as the team member looks in another direction or opens a door. You'll see what they see uh, in there. And I thought it was a really interesting way to unravel the town for us, uh, and it's something that I don't remember ever seeing used in that way before. I thought that was really clever.
1: Uh, I I agree. It was really unique to kind of see it done that way. And I I mean, I just loved the way that all the little boxes were moving around. And to a certain extent, it reminded me of the Thomas crown affair. um, And like the way that they used split screen in that film, Um, which I think to a certain extent was, uh, uh, was, I don't know if it was, it was new and unique, but I did like how they did it, particularly in the opening of that film. Production design, Boris Levin, what I found interesting was that he actually worked with Gidding as Gidding was kind of working on the script to kind of co-develop some of the story elements in the uh, that were both in the script and then eventually in the set. I thought that was an interesting way to work that you'd actually kind of bring the production designer in to kind of figure out, okay, so how would we do this and then work to kind of piece the world together. Not something you hear very often, so I thought that was uh, fascinating. I I don't want to spoil
0: the numbers, but did you get a sense of what I had read? Is that the lion's share of the budget of this film actually went to the lab? That it was an, an uh, over large for what they actually needed, but that he wanted to uh, that Wise really wanted to make this um, a, a feel like a complete universe. And so they which, spent a lot of money on this uh, on on this set.
1: Which is funny because you've got the, the core tunnel, which you see, it's the curved tunnel that goes kind of around the central core. And you see it, and I mean, they just repainted it every time you were on a different level. So it always felt like a different level. But it's interesting because you never see much of it other than a small stretch of it at a time. So it doesn't feel like it's that huge of a set. So right. It's kind of interesting. It's not like you watch them as they run around, you know, a 360 loop around this thing already
0: Right, right. And um, then there's
1: the central core, which, I mean, they did actually have to break the stage floor uh, to build down and then make it tall enough so these guys could be climbing the ladder and everything. But even then, they brought in Al Whitlock, who's an, an amazing matte painter, Uh, from the era to kind of finish and he did the whole top level of that and uh, it was pretty interesting Uh, i mean i really liked this world i thought they did a great job of putting it together
0: yeah i did too i thought it was beautiful i just it just felt like maybe they you know they (laughs) just went a little overboard in some places where they didn't need to i'm just saying uh like particular uh in particular the security system that protects the core was terrible
1: (laughs) Yeah, these lasers that they have for uh, for what was it for you know small mammals that they, it detected in there <laughs> yes. to take them out so they didn't destroy anything. They are the slowest lasers in the world. If a small mammal gets in there, they would never hit something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they would never hit anything because they, yeah, they're slow and they're uh, they're just they don't aim very well. No, Even when no. they have time, they don't. There is no aim. Uh, though I have to say, the shot to the face. He takes a shot to the face. James Olsen oh, yeah. does. And it burns a hole in his cheek and then another in his hand. And both of those looked
1: very painful. Yeah, they looked rather disgusting. It's like all of his skin blackened and it just looked kind of uh, dead. Charred. Was, yeah. And, I mean, obviously it hit him pretty hard because he could barely make his way out. It was uh, uh, Those were some serious uh, laser shots. Very serious. Those that did accidentally luckily hit
0: him. Douglas Trumbull is back with on effects with James Short
1: and Albert Whitlock? he brought a lot to the table here, and he said he actually almost went bankrupt doing the effects for this film because he actually underbid the job, thinking it wouldn't take quite as much. but I mean everything that he supplied here was so cutting edge at the time and I think that's it is important to note looking back on a film like this that you know the effects that we're seeing the micro photography with the motion control the um the high res video imagery that they have the uh All the different optical photographic visual effects and the 3D rendering of the lab when you see it kind of spinning up there. All that stuff was new at the time. And so it really kind of set a bar for effects. And Douglas Trumbull, I mean, he's a guy who had been doing this um, since he started with some of these films, like 2001. It's just amazing. And the stuff that he would do, um, like in Close Encounters. I mean, he did some just really fantastic work. And the stuff he does here is is also solid. I think the issue is again Robert Wise spends so much time focusing on it that it kind of uh, pulls us out of the story. Yeah, I totally agree. Although one of the highlights that,
0: that is just so troubling in this film is how they handle lab animals. Ugh. it's it's really hard to watch. Uh, and and I was I had to question given the era whether they were just killing animals for the film it actually I, it was unnerving
1: i absolutely thought so too and it, i mean it does say right at the beginning all all the treatment of the animals was under uh the watch of the whoever it was aspca but nothing
0: um, else in the beginning was true how are we supposed to believe uh, that
1: <laughs> well what's what's funny about it i think <laughs> is is looking at what they're doing in 1971 and thinking about what they would do in a film today would they would the even the animals animal rights group have let them do what they did cuz essentially they practically killed these animals they they uh, sucked out all the um, oxygen and pumped in CO and in the process of that uh, these animals had nothing to breathe and they were basically going into asphyxiation and suffocating to death, uh, death. and we're watching these animals actually die look like they die and then as soon as the the you know the edit cuts we were not seeing them flashing them with um with oxygen blasts that they would use to kind of revive them and you know robert Y says oh and then the animals got up and it was like nothing ever happened like i'm sure that's how it seemed robert but yeah robert time, let's it's go like-
0: I, i've got a 68 chevelle parked in the lot it's got a vacuum <laughs> hose to the
1: exhaust let's go ahead and try that with you see how it feels Right, exactly. I have a feeling there's a little more to it than uh, oh yeah, they just popped right back up. It's like nothing yeah. ever happened. Really unnerving. That's because they can't tell you how awful it was. Yeah, it's a
0: monkey. It's a rat, you <laughs> dummy.
1: Oh, it's it is horribly troubling to watch. Yeah, it was really.
0: It, it, yeah, it was very troubling. Um, yeah. uh, but also really added to the to the uh, the overall fabric of the film. And it was you know when that happened,
1: it sort of wakes you up. Uh. It, a bit. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean to that end, it serves as purpose in the film, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what it, it does was. Supposed exactly. To
0: do. Yeah. Shall we talk more about the music that I hated?
1: I I guess we don't have to say a whole lot other than I mean, I think Gil Millet obviously did exactly what Robert Wise was looking for, which is creating a, a score that was not a musical score. It was just sounds and soundscapes and just interesting vibes that kind of came through to kind of uh you know Set us uh, set us off a little bit. I mean, it was it was very um, uncomfortable to listen to the stuff that he put forth. For me, in the context of the film, that meant that it worked. But I can totally appreciate the way that it is making you feel. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something I would ever listen to on its own. I'll well,
0: yeah, I was going to say, how does that fit in your soundtrack rotation? I uh, I can't imagine that Robert Wise would hear my my frustrations with it and and call that anything less than a win. Given the film, uh, it is really uh, unnerving soundscape. Um, that that you know, I mean, you, the the argument can be well made that uh, it it served its pers- purpose by by setting me off in such a uncomfortable space
1: what's interesting is that he's listed with uh, credits spanning over 100 films and television works and in the in the list of stuff that he's done this is listed as the first which makes me think it might be the most popular film maybe not the most popular score but it does make me wonder like what the rest of his uh, scores are like for those other uh, nearly you know over 100 (laughs) projects (laughs) i don't know how much i'd want to jump in and uh, tune into them uh, how'd this do at a award season? Well, you know, it did get nominated for a couple things, and I think that's kind of what happens uh, with these uh, with this sort of film. It did get nominated for best art direction, again by Boris Levin, along with William H. Tunke and Ruby R. Levitt. It did lose to Nicholas and Alexandra, and it was uh, also nominated for best film editing by Stuart Gilmore and John W. Holmes, and it did lose to The French Connection which uh, I think is uh, fair to say for that one. Um, You know, and just, I guess it's worth pointing out, as a former editor himself, uh, Robert Wise, I guess it speaks to his direction that he ended up um, directing a film that brought its editors to an Oscar nomination because, uh, you know, he knew how to tell the story tautly and uh, these guys uh, did a great job for him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, The Thing was remade in 2008. Have you seen it? No, we did mention that briefly last right. week and I you know I haven't seen it I didn't uh, in, from then to now I didn't seek it out um I just didn't hear much great about it so I kind of left that one alone but uh I don't know I mean it's one of those things I I don't think a remake was a bad idea but it didn't sound like that was the one to do it right.
0: Yeah, it was it it's a little bit jarring. I've only seen the first hour and a half um because that's the only part that's been uh, bootlegged. It's tough to find. Like, you can't just buy it. It, It's not an iTunes thing. It's not on Netflix. It's, you know, which maybe is telling. Uh, But it does star some interesting people of television lore. Benjamin Bratt uh, is in it. Krista Miller, uh, Luis Ferreira, uh, who was, you know, obviously in our favorite uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. Uh, Young Rick Schroeder plays Major Bill Keen. Uh, Eric McCormick from uh, Will and Grace fame. Daniel Day Kim from Lost fame um so it's it's full of these people oh andre Brower is in it andre Brower actually plays uh general manchek uh so it is it is interesting um but it's it it just doesn't um y- y- you know it, it, it i'll tell you what it does do this is this was my first the, the first thing i noted man do they move through those five levels
1: Oh, nice! <laughs> oh, it's so fast.
0: They just—they show them scrubbed. They show scrub, them on the xenon light. They show them covered in soap. It's like a car wash. It is. They just stand on this thing, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's like the opening to the Jetsons. <laughs> uh, it, it's really funny, and so uh, they just got right into the story. Uh, you know, Viola Davis is in it too, of all people. Oh she's, wow! She's actually in. so it's it's full of some people that I really like. Uh, it just uh, um, you know it, it ended up being kind of a half a story. I really would like to see this thing done well. It's it's I, I think it's a pretty good story, and and it, this wasn't a terrible movie. Um, it it certainly was no Omega Man.
1: Yeah, right. Absolutely not.
0: What do you think? You want to do the numbers?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Uh, this film, uh, it did okay for itself. It was released March twelfth, nineteen seventy one. Uh, made for about six and a half million, which in today's dollars is about thirty seven and a half million dollars. And then it ended up grossing at the domestic box office about uh, just under twelve and a half, which is just over seventy one million. So all told, the film ended up making an adjusted profit per finished minute of about two hundred sixty thousand. Yeah, that's all right. Not too bad. It yes. puts it at 130 on our list. Yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, with that, we should probably rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll find our list. You sign in. You search for the Andromeda Strain 1971 version, and that'll
1: give you the film that we're ranking tonight. Andromeda Strain versus... Well, first up, we have uh, Andromeda Strain versus Hot Fuzz. I'm wondering if that is going to kind of become a new oh uh, Brother block.
0: Oh, well, that's going to be a tough one. Probably, Not really.
1: well, if it is, it, it definitely is going to be a tough one to beat. Yeah, to beat, yeah, definitely, hot it's fuzz definitely, on this
0: one. definitely hot fuzz on this one.
1: All right, uh, next up is uh, Andromeda Strain versus The Sandlot. I'm going to say The Sandlot. I'm unequivocally, unequivocally. yeah, Andromeda Strain or Bull Durham. Bull Durham for me. Okay, <laughs> The Andromeda Strain or Marty. Oh, everybody's favorite, 1955. Well, the, the Andromeda Strain. <laughs> Yeah, I'll pick Andromeda Strain. Uh, How about against Key Largo? I'm going Key Largo. I'm going Key Largo. Andromeda Strain or the Blob, Little Steve McQueen. Mm, The Blob. If it's uh, creatures from outer space, in in both cases, it's going to be the Blob for me. Yeah, definitely. How about against the Hound of the Baskervilles? I'm going to say Andromeda Strain. I am too. Stupid dog. (laughs) That's terrible. The Andromeda Strain or Manhunt. Oh, Fritz Lang. I'm going to do Manhunt. I am also going to do Manhunt. Well, that puts it at 235. Wow. It's yep. funny.
0: I it, That's that's right at the bottom of the list. I did not intend it to be right at the bottom of the list.
1: This was it's, not a terrible film. It's not at the bottom of the list. I mean, there are uh, 18, 17 below it. What's right below it? Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, right. Yeah, see...
0: I feel much more strongly about Hound of the Baskervilles than I do about this one.
1: Yeah, but it, it felt, um, I, I think the problem with this film is the pacing is just so poor Yeah, that as interesting as the film may seem, it just, when you reflect on it, it's like, oh, I just don't want to sit through that, you know, 40 minutes in the middle again. Yeah. All right. What does this do for you for Letterboxd? You know, I gave this a 3 star. I uh, I feel like uh, it might be more of a 2 star though.
0: Wow. I this was a strong meh for me. Yeah. I think you may be right. I was cataloging this as a 3 star because it's so middle of the road. Right. Yeah, I'm going to stick with 3 stars. This is a street 3 star movie for me.
1: Okay. All yeah, right. I'll stick I'll with let that. you do that. I'm I'm being the uh the waffler and I'm going yeah. to.
0: All right. Uh so that's it that's uh, that's where we are for the Andromeda strain the second in our disease film series uh i we've got a lot of great movies coming up though what do where do we go from here What's our next film? Well, we keep film? saying that. Let's hope, yeah. let's hope that it's true. <laughs> I can only say that without qualification in like
1: four weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll see. Exactly. Well, next up, um, I'm looking forward to this. It's uh, Romero's The Crazies from 73, which I've actually never seen. I've only seen the remake. So I'm really curious to go back and re- revisit this little bit of George Romero um, post-zombie uh, and just get a sense of uh, what he was doing with this one.
0: Yeah, I, I am looking forward to this one as well. I also have never seen it, uh, and so we definitely spoke too soon about all the great films coming up. The jury <laughs> well, is officially out. <laughs> maybe it will be. Uh, it's going to be uh, It's gonna be a fun one to talk about. Uh, we do have, before that, oh, you guys, you and Steve uh, went out and you saw a, a concert. Yes, we did. And we're going to be doing, a, you guys have a little uh, short coming up to talk about the music of John Carpenter. Which, please, I hope, was better than the music of Gilmolay.
1: <laughs> if it were a concert of Gilmolay, I don't think I would have attended. <laughs> I know nothing else of his music, but uh, if, if he was playing any bit of Andromeda Strain, you no, know, thank you.
0: So, do you, you want to give us a little preview? You could
1: sing a little bit if you wanted. I think it's just what's interesting about uh, John Carpenter, and we talk about it, is, uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about three of his films, and his scores have never completely wowed me. I think that's fair to say. Um, however, what uh, became clear to me as we went to this concert is he sure knows how to put a theme together. And and while he may not be able to really put a whole score together that carries an entire film, he comes up with some pretty iconic themes. And his music... Um, it's it's a very, uh, I don't know, it's a well-defined uh, musical genre that he's almost created. It's very easy to kind of uh, pattern after it. We talked about it in, in, uh, in Paranorman. I mean, he, he's one of those guys who's created a, a style, and I think it's pretty interesting what he's done. And it was a fun concert to see, and it was definitely fun to talk to Steve about uh, his music and some of the stuff that he's done.
0: Well, I can't wait
1: to hear it. There you go. Until Excellent. then, I'm going to go to bed. All right, I'm going to go knock back a few cans of sternum.
0: Got a one star, Andy, and I feel a little bit conflicted. Uh, it's just it's sort of low hanging fruit. Nana watched this movie in 2014. Says uh, Andromeda Strain will strain your ability to stay awake. Do you see what she did there with strain? It oh, oh. was a little play on words. I remembered reading the book and thinking it was pretty good. I couldn't have been more wrong about the movie. I fell asleep three times trying to get through it. Such a bad movie. No suspense here. This was a big disappointment and uh that is that that really s- celebrates the general catalog of negative reviews that it is so boring uh and, and you know i i don't want to cheat by doing two but uh a guy follows up uh nana and says somehow they made this awesome book boring that
1: takes skill <laughs> it, what's interesting it, though is that 69% of people who ranked it on amazon gave it 5 stars yes and another 20 gave it 4 So that's a whopping huge percent who rank this way up high. And mine is one of these five stars by Paul, who says it's the best science fiction film of all time. Wow. Let me qualify that remark with a few statements. Star Wars was pure fantasy in a sci-fi setting. Star Trek takes great liberties with technical accuracy, making it more space opera than real science fiction. 2001 probably qualifies as science fiction but the main ideas are more metaphysical than anything scientific that leaves Andromeda Strain with the title of the best hard science fiction film of all hard science science fiction film of all time. The Andromeda Strain shows how a hard science plot can be made exciting. True, the technology is a little dated, but it only adds to the realism. I'm sure this film won't appeal to the same people who will flock to rainless action flicks like this summer's Wild Wild West. I guess we know when this was written. But if you have a brain and you're willing to use it, this film is great entertainment. I I did use my brain, Paul, but uh, I don't know, it just didn't click for me. Where would Glad you rank I it? Where would you, you rank it against Wild Wild West? Just you know, yeah. on a lark, <laughs> right? <laughs> Come on, Paul. Let us know. I like how he he has to kind of keep classifying his science fiction film until it's so narrow that Andromeda Strain is the only thing left really to be the best hard science science fiction film. <laughs> exactly. Of all time. Exactly. Involving curved hallways
0: and <laughs> slow lasers. You won't find a better film in that category. Thank you Amazon.
1: Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better.
0: After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us.
1: If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to the slash Transistor and check it out.
0: Support our show and support your own show. By going to the nextreal.com/slash transistor, start growing your podcast today.